All right. How's everyone doing? For those... Pff. It's all right. Forgive you. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Hannibal, and I want to welcome you all again, especially if you're visiting for the first or second time. I just want to share with you that we are so happy that you're here. We are here to love you and serve you. And uh, please let us know what is that you need and how can we serve you best. Uh, uh, one of the ways to do it is, use, is using the QR code that you have in front of you, uh, giving us your information, and we will get back to you. Today, we continue with our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And we are starting uh, part six of this series in which, uh, if you notice, we have a new icon and we also have a new sticker for those of you that have the journal. Um, so if you haven't gotten one of those, I think that there's somewhere in the common area, please pick one. Uh, and we just finished going through Matthew chapter 13, which is a beautiful section that talks about uh, that Jesus uses these parables to talk about the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God looks like and what kingdom people looks like. Um, and Jesus, by this time in the narrative, is, is gaining popularity. Like, he's known now by all kinds of people, including people in positions of power. People in positions, in high positions in society. Actually, the text says that Jesus was gaining fame. So and so much fame that even Herod the Tetrarch, mentioned in the text, gets to know him, and this is an interesting character, not only an interesting character for who he was and how he lived, but it's interesting because of his interaction with John the Baptist. And it is from him and John the Baptist and the interaction they have that we're going to learn three, th three things today from the text. What to fear, what not to fear, and whom to fear. What to fear, what not to fear, and whom to fear. For the first point, what to fear, we're going to be looking into Herod and his family. For point number two, what not to fear, we're going to be looking into John and the way he lived. And for point number three, whom to fear, you know that we're going to, talk, we're going to be talking about Jesus. All right? So I need, you, I need you to do me a favor, look at the person next to you and ask the question, got fear? Go ahead. <laughs> Good. Let's go with point number one. What to fear. Verse 1 introduces Herod, Herod in, a, in a very interesting way. He calls it Herod the Tetrarch. Now, the name Herod there is not necessarily his name. It's not a cute name that the parents thought, man, we should call him Herod. Actually, the name Herod there is more like his title. And it's the dynasty of family title. So he was called Herod, and his father was called Herod, and the people behind, before him were also called Herod. And just in case, if you have been working with us through this journey, I don't want you to get confused between this Herod that we find here in Matthew 14 and Herod that we find in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 is the one that is interacting with Jesus or wanted to interact with Jesus. That Herod in Matthew chapter 2 is called Herod the Great, which is the father of the Herod we have right now in Matthew chapter 14. Now, the reason why this Herod is called a Tetrarch is because in the Roman kingdom and these people, uh, Herod the Great divided the kingdom into four different sections or four different um, uh, regions. Those were called Tetrarchs. So this Herod 
is the king over that section. Are you guys still with me? Now, before we dig into the text, I got I to gotta prep you for this. Number one is, the first part is confusing. So I really going to need you to pay attention and say amen. <laughs> you, you failed the test so far. Right? I'm going to need you to pay attention because you're going to get lost, number one. And number two, I want you to just think for a second of a family that you think is a dysfunctional family. Just think about it. Now, or ask the question if your family is a dysfunctional family. Now, obviously that family is a dysfunctional family. <laughs> and if you don't think that there are dysfunctional members in your family, most likely is that you are the dysfunctional one. <laughs> I, listen, in, in all honesty, I think that my family is a little bit dysfunctional. Uh, until I read this, man. You know, you got crazy cousins every now and then and crazy uncles. Like, listen, my family is dysfunctional mainly because of my wife and daughters. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm the problem usually. Uh, and if they will be bold enough, they would say, preach. <laughs> uh, but the reason why I want to start with that is because if you think that you know a dysfunctional family, it's because you don't know this family. Like, really? I think that part of the reason why this is in this text is so we see what dysfunctional looks like. So, with that in mind, let me, let me dig into this. And once again, you got to stay with me. All right, so if I was a psychologist, I would say that this person is really messed up because of his family background. So, for example, let's, let's start talking about the father, the one that I mentioned that comes in, in, in Matthew chapter 2, Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the same guy that wanted to kill Jesus when Jesus was a baby. Remember that? Herod the Great is the one that sent to kill a ton of babies under the age of two because he wanted to kill Jesus. Herod the Great in Matthew chapter 2 was an insecure, egomaniac, self-centered, narcissistic, drunk with power monster. That will kill anybody that he felt would be a threat to his power and title. History tells us that he was so twisted and dysfunctional that he killed a ton of family members. Actually, the saying going around when he was alive was, it is better to be the Herod's pig than to be the Herod's son. That tells you something. That tells you that guy was really, really dysfunctional. Now, the guy that we have here in Matthew chapter 14, Herod the Tetrarch, his name is Antipas. Now, once again, he's the son of Herod the Great. And you could say to a certain degree that because of his relationship with his father and the fear that he has of his father, he has daddy issues. I think that's understood, right? There's more, though. Herod the Great had at least 10 wives. And we know from history that Antipas, Herod in Matthew 14, has four half-brothers. You guys still with me? Now, it's going to get complicated in a second. Just follow, follow along. I didn't get that. I know. Siri got it. <laughs> One of his brothers is Philip that we find in verse 3. 
And there's another lady mentioned in verse 3 that her name is Herodias. Did you guys see that before? Now, Herodias is the daughter of another of his half-brothers. You guys with me? So you got Antipas, the guy that we're looking at. You got Philip, a brother. And you got Herodias, which is the daughter of another half-brother. Now, if you think that's complicated, pay attention to this. Herodias' dad was executed by his father. So we know that this woman has major issues because of everything that has happened in her family. But what is happening in the text then is that um, Antipas, Herod chapter 14, is in love with, no, no, no. Wait, wait, wait. I got the image in my head. Oh, so what we have in chapter 14, yeah, is that, is that Antipas is in love with Herodias, which he happened to be his niece. Is that messed up? All right, you guys still with me? Because I got lost in my head. And it happened, it, it happened in the same service, in first service too. So watch here. The text doesn't tell us how is that this couple got together. It doesn't. All he says is that John knows about this and confronts them. You guys with me? You, you look lost just as much as I do. <laughs> so we don't know how this family got together. So I had to use my imagination for this one. All right? Listen up. Um... Let's pretend for a second that there's a family picnic, right? In which Herodias and Herod the Tetrarch are celebrating with the rest of the family. Let's say that they were celebrating Labor Day. Because they were celebrating that they didn't have to work, but their slaves did. And as, and as they're there, the whole family is together. So Herod the Tetrarch is with his wife, right? And Herodias is with... Uh, her husband, right? And, you know, just think about the drama. Think about, man, this is a story for Hollywood, people, right? So they're, they're together, and, and they're spending time together, and they look at each other, and they've, they fell out of love and fell in love within seconds. That's what happened, right? And the text tells us that they got divorced and they got married, which makes the situation super weird. Now, Herodias had previously married his, his half other half-brother, which is Philip. You guys still with me? So she's the daughter of one brother. He gets married to Philip. And now that they're married, Herod the Tetrarch is in love with her, and now she dumps him to get with him. Super simple. Everyone knows about this. Everyone knows about this drama. There was so much drama that even John the Baptist, that he was minding his own business, living in a desert, heard about this. Now, the text doesn't tell us how is it that he found out about this. So what do I do? I use my imagination. So John the Baptist in the desert preaching the gospel, right, calling people to repentance because that's what he did, right? 
And as one of these fellows is com coming to get baptized, right before he gets baptized, he goes, hey, John, hold on a second. Did you hear what happened to Herod? <laughs> now, John the Baptist does the most loving thing that anybody could do. You confront the people that are sinning for their own good. You call them out for their own good. You do it with gentleness and you do it with love, but you don't, you don't hold back. Now, you got to remember that John the Baptist is a prophet. So look at what happens in verse 3. Now, Herod had arrested John about, and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his wife, his brother's Philip's wife, which I already explained, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. You guys see it? Obviously, John knows that there's something wrong when you get married to your brother's wife, which happens to be your niece. Obviously, there's something wrong there. And what John is doing is confronting him, not because he's confronting an unbeliever per se, but because he knows that Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, he, he has a Jewish background. Therefore, he knows that Leviticus chapter 18 and Leviticus chapter 20 says that it's not morally correct to have sex with someone from your own family. You guys with me? Now, because of that, now Herod in Matthew chapter 14 wants to kill John. Look at what it says in verse 5. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John to be a prophet. Now, I want you to hold, there, uh, hold for a second the word afraid in your mind because I'm going to come back to that word later on. But notice, I, I want you to pause there for a second because if I was a psychologist, I could tell, I could tell um, this guy, uh, Herod, listen, you got all the problems in the world because you got a really messed up dad. Now, our relationship with our parents really affects us. We are the product of everything we live. We are the product of our families. We are the product of our background and struggles and all of that stuff. We are the product of all of that. So Herod could have said, you know what, John, please don't call me out like that. Be nice. You know my dad. You know all the daddy issues we have. You know that, you know, Herodias didn't really love my brother. That's why we're together because you know what? Love is thicker than blood. He could have used all of that. And yet, John calls them out. Why? Because regardless of what you have lived, and what I have lived, and our families, and everything that has gone wrong, that never excuses immorality. There's never an excuse for our immorality. It doesn't matter your background, your family. There's never an excuse for immorality. Now, by now, I think that you could see why is it that I say that this is a dysfunctional family. Amen? I think that by now, you should reconsider if you are part of a dysfunctional family. How about if I tell you that this gets worse? Because not only Herod the Great is messed up. Not only Herod the Tetrarch is messed up. Not only Herodias is messed up. But you got to see the magnitude of messed up Herodias is. So look at what it says in verse 6. And Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias, she danced for the guest and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. 
Oh, church, you have to stop there and think about what's happening. So it was the custom at that time that whenever someone in power was uh, celebrating birthday, you would invite all your friends and people with power. And part of the celebration, the crooked celebration, was to bring a young slave to dance and satisfy the lustful desires of these crooked men. That's why pornography is such an offense to the Lord and destruction to humanity. That was all days pornography. So this woman, this girl, is supposed to dance, and the text says that not only the guests enjoy all of this, but Herod was pleased with that. You know, the name of that girl was Salome. Maybe 12 to 14 years old, years old girl. But you know what makes it even more messed up? That he is his stepdaughter. Can you see that? And you know what makes it even more messed up? That most likely, that was her mom's idea. How do I know that? Look at verse 8. She, prompted by her mother, she said, give me here and a platter the hair of John the Baptist. So this guy is all animated because he sees the young girls dancing. All his lustful friends are doing the same thing. He gets all excited to the point that he says, I'll give you anything you want. And the girl, under the advice of her mom, says, how about if you give me John's head? Don't you think that your family is not as dysfunctional anymore? How messed up this is. Now, the story has a, an interesting twist because now this guy needs to kill John. And he wants to kill John in verse, chapter five, in verse 5. But look, look at what it says in verse 9. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted, and they killed John. Now, the reason why this is so weird is because he says that he's distressed. You know, one of the commentators I checked, his name is Doug O'Donnell. He, uh, he's got a, a huge volume on the Gospel of Matthew. And when he's looking at this family, he says that this is the perfect family, the perfect description of the things that God hates in Proverbs chapter 6. Let me, read that. Let me read that passage to you and just pay attention to it. It says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, falsehood, hands that shed innocent blood, murder, a heart, a heart that devises wicked schemes, evil plans, feet that are quick to rush into evil like lust and adultery, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who, sits, who stirs up conflict in the community. Family betrayal. Don't you think that that's a description of this family? Why is it that this king, why is it that Herod is in distress? Dean verse 5 says that he wanted to kill him. Why is he sad? Why does he grieve that he's got to take call the, uh, kill the person that is calling him out and calling him to repentance? 
See, this is one of those places in which you have to compare what the Gospels say. We get a short version of this story here in Matthew. You get an extended version in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. And I want to read to you that section, and I want you to pay attention to something that is there that is not in the Gospel of Matthew. Look at what it says. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your, your brother's wife. He had already said that. So Herodias nursed a grudge. Meaning that it started little by little and continued to grow and grow and grow against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to. Why? Because Herod feared John and protected him. Don't you find that weird? You know what the word fear there means? To admire or respect. So on one end he wants to kill him and on the other end he admires him and respects John. Why, the text says, because he knew him to be a righteous and holy man. So when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. What? Did you notice the word puzzle? The word puzzled is what describes what was happening in his heart that led him to be distressed. The word puzzle literally means... When you want something, but you don't want it. When you feel disoriented and lost. When you travel back and forth, literally, that's what that means. The reason why Herod was in distress is because he knew what was wrong, and he knew what was right, and he didn't know what to do. On one end, or on one hand, he knew that there was no justification for what he was doing wrong. But on the other end, he's being, he's being driven by desires and pleasure. On one end, he respects John and believes that he is righteous and holy. And he likes to hear what he teaches. But on the other end, he wants to follow his heart. And I find it crazy what we see in, in Mark because it seems to be like if he put him in prison and every now and then he would let him out. And every time he would let him out, John continued to preach the message that he was preaching. And he still liked what he heard. What was Antipas' problem? What was Herod's, the Tetrarch's problem? I think it was a fear problem. See, I told you to remember the word fear. Remember? Verse 5. See, this guy feared people. To a certain degree, this guy feared his wife. And the Bible says that he also feared John. There was one thing that he did not fear. His sin. He did not fear his sin. And you and I are called to fear our sin. And now I want to show you why. See, he should have stopped to consider that the sins of his father really affected him. And that his personal sins affected everyone he cared about. Because sin never lives in isolation and always affects the people that live with us. Even if no one knows what you're doing. Sin is that dangerous. See, Herod should stop to consider 
that sin is always egocentric. As much as you want to care for the people you care, you can't because sin says it's all about you. Your dreams, your desires, your passions, your emotions. See, Herod should stop to consider that sin always starts little and gradually grows over time until it takes you to the point that you will kill your family. Not literally, but you know what I mean. That sin has ramifications and always grows. See, he should have started to consider that sin is a distortion that does not respect anyone. It doesn't respect the family. It doesn't respect society. It doesn't even respect a righteous and holy man. See, he should have started to consider that if you surrender to sin, you are violating your own conscience. And that sin has the potential not only to destroy you, but destroy everyone else. He should have stopped to consider that either he will kill his own sin or his sin will kill him altogether. If you're everyone and everything except one thing, he did not fear his sin. If there's anyone we can learn from this man, it's precisely that. That our sins are not like, ah, oops, I did it again. That your sin is dangerous. Either you kill it or it will kill you. Now, that word killing is what is going to lead me to my second point. What not to fear. I told you that with the first point, we're going to learn from the Herodians. And for the second point, we have to learn from John. And I want to make the argument that part of the reason why we sin, and we surrender to our sin, and we exchange sin for good things, is because deep down inside, we are afraid of dying. I want to make the argument that part of the reason why Herod lived the way he did is because even though he believed in the resurrection, he lived functionally like if the resurrection didn't matter. What I want to show you here is that there is a distinction between Herod and John, and both of them believe in the resurrection. But the way they live functionally looks completely different. You ready? Did Herod believe in the resurrection? Of course he did. Look at what it says in verse 2. When he heard about these things about Jesus, he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and this is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Notice that he believed that Jesus was probably John resurrected. So he has no problems believing in the resurrection. He just doesn't live according to it. John, on the other hand, also believed in the resurrection. And we know that because when he died, in verse 12, he says that his disciples came and took his body and buried it. See, for that culture, that time, when you bury the body was because you believed that Jesus one day will come back and resurrect the body and everything is going to be made new. So what is the main difference between Herod the Tetrarch, Antipas, and John? 
Listen up, church. I think that Herod believed in the resurrection at a very superficial level. And I know that because he lived like if this life was the only thing he would get. See, he believed in resurrection, but he lived in such a way like if everything is about this life right now. It's the yellow thing that people talk about. You only live once. It's this thing about the, let's, let's eat and drink because tomorrow we'll die. Let's pursue all of our pleasures and dreams. Do your bucket list before you die. John, on the other hand, believe that the better life is the one that is to come. Herod believed that all pleasure and joy and happiness and all these things you find on this side of glory, he thought that the ultimate happiness, the ultimate aesthetic experience, the ultimate love, the ultimate power, the ultimate fulfillment and accomplishment can be found on this side of glory. That's why he lived the way he lived. John, on the other hand, had a completely different understanding. He understood that the ultimate happiness, that the ultimate aesthetic experience, that the ultimate love, the ultimate power, the ultimate fulfillment, the ultimate accomplishment could never be found here. You only get them at the other side of glory when Jesus returns. You know what's the difference between these two, these two men in the way they lived? That this man, Herod, is wasting his life away seeking for something that he cannot find. And this is where the secular mentality doesn't help us. Because for a secular person, this is all you get. Pursue it. Dream. Don't neglect anything. Don't deny anything. But we all know that it doesn't matter how much you accomplish and you do. And you take care of yourself and whatever it is, nothing here fulfills. So what the secular mentality says? Change it. Pursue another dream. Pursue another person. Pursue another career. Pursue another uh, title. Pursue another ministry. Pursue any other thing. Give yourself away to anything you want until you find it. And if you know what I know is that deep down inside, we all know that nothing is ever enough. That is the mo most exhausting way to live your life. John, on the other hand, he knew the difference between that side of glory and this side of glory. I think this is part of the reason why John was indestructible, you know? And you cannot offer him anything that will make him walk away from Jesus. You remember how he started his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Can you imagine if I'm a guest speaker in a different church and that's the primary message? I guarantee you I will never get invited again. Why is it that John starts his ministry like that? Because he had nothing here to gain. He knew that the best life is only lived on the other side of glory. Contrary to a popular evangelist says, live your best life now. Joe Austin, just in case. <laughs> See, 
Why is it that John the Baptist says, Jesus must increase and I must increase and I must decrease? You know what that means? All I want is for Jesus to be recognized. I don't mind if I, get fa- if, if I fade away. I don't mind if I get unnoticed. I'm yet to find a person that says, I love it. Nobody paid attention to me. You know why he could live like that? Because he knew the difference between living on this side of glory and that side of glory. You know what's crazy? He's in prison for calling them out. He knows that he might get killed. And yet when Herod gives him, gives him a break and allows him to come out and preach the gospel again, he's still preaching the same message. You know why he did that? Because he was not afraid of dying. He did not fear death. Death for him was graduation. Death for him was entering into a better kingdom. Death for him was enjoying the presence of his his Father and Lord Savior, Jesus. How do you destroy a man like that? Because he feared his sin and did not fear death. Because he feared his sin and did not fear death. Question. How do we get there? How do we live like that? Point number three, home to fear. I have to take you back to one of the things that John says the first time he saw Jesus. The first thing that he said when he saw Jesus before Jesus gets baptized is this. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You guys remember what the word fear means in the Bible? We talked about this before. Fear in the Bible has a double meaning. One is to really be afraid, and, in the, and the other one is to experience wonder. Almost every time you see in the Bible when it calls us to fear God is to do those two things. To fear God, be afraid of him, because he is a consuming fire. He's not a wimpy God. He's not the one, the God that you take out when you need and you put him away when you don't. He's not your genie God. He's a consuming fire. But at the same time, he's wonderful and amazing and beautiful. How about if I tell you that the way to bring these two things together to the point that we fear our sin and we don't fear death is when we see that God in the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So I got I, I to break, break that down for you. I want to start by trying to convince you that you and I, I and you, we are more like the Herodians than what we think we are. Maybe our family is not as messed up, but if I grab Proverbs chapter 6 alone, who here has not struggled with haughty eyes, pride? Who has not said uh, things that are false? Who here, well, don't say that, who killed somebody because I'm not interested in that part right now. Who has not done wicked schemes? Who has not walked toward evil? 
Who has not lied? And stir up conflict in community. Next year, we're going to go through elections again. Right? Two years from now. You know that last one is going to become a reality again. Especially for those of you that confuse politics with the gospel. So here's the question again. Who is not like the Herodians here? And yet, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the gentle, humble Savior Jesus, the gentle, humble Savior that died for us, is the one that takes all of our sin away. The way we learn how to hate our sin and not fear, uh, be afraid of death is by embracing this Lamb of God. Listen, God ought to be feared. You know how I know that? Because Jesus had to die. But at the same time, you got to see the wonder. And this is where the word lamb is going to help us. Have you guys ever seen a lamb die? I've seen it a couple of times, and it's amazing. Why would God choose that image? See, this is unique about a lamb. When they're being killed, they don't make any noise. And they don't fight back. And they're looking at the face as they want. They're looking at the face to the person that is executing them. You know, I went into a company. Where we actually got to see it. And we were reading Isaiah 53. And you get to see it. The lamb allows himself to be killed and does not make any noise and does not fight back and he looks at you which is extremely creepy <laughs> we think of Jesus that he knew that you and I have been like the Herodians that maybe our sins have been different but it's the same heart and he knew that we, what, we, what we would do to him as he goes to the cross. And he knew that he would have to suffer like nobody else has, has suffered. And he knew that he would be rejected and not loved and, and underappreciated. And he knew that the very people he came for would be the very people that would crucify him. And yet, he stays quiet. And allows himself to be killed. And when he opens his mouth, nailed to the cross, the only thing that he says up there is this. Why have you forsaken me like if I was a Herodian? Please forgive these people for they do not know what they're doing, the Herodians. And it is finished. Your sins have been taken away. You want to learn how to hate your sin? Fear your sin. You look at Jesus and him crucified. You want to learn how to live this life knowing that the best is yet to come? You got to look at Jesus and him crucified because in his death, he guaranteed the resurrection. Can we live like that? Can we respond like that? Who are we going to be? 
the Herodians or John. May the Lord have mercy on us. Let's pray. My beautiful Savior, we are grateful that we can be honest about our, our own struggles, Lord, and we recognize that we don't fear our sin enough. We are grateful, Lord, that even in the midst of our sin, Lord, we have been forgiven because the Lamb of God who came to take the sins away already died and already resurrected. And it's because he resurrected that we know what's coming and the beauty of what's coming. Please teach us to live in such a way that we embrace the other side of glory. And that we live here knowing that nothing here can give us what is yet to come. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus and the church says.